Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. Take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. You and I are going to be leaders and we have to learn how to motivate the people that we influence. The thing that has to happen to us, first of all, is we have to have our own act together spiritually and our own lives in order so that we can, in fact, be a blessing and an encouragement and an influence on the lives of other people. Nehemiah is one of those classic examples of leadership, and in all the books of the Old Testament may be the greatest book on leadership written. Obviously, the Lord Jesus being our example in how to lead people, but Nehemiah certainly is a flesh-and-blood example of what it takes to motivate people. And if you're going to motivate folks, you need to understand six basic needs of everybody that you meet. There are needs in your life, and there are needs in the lives of other people that you meet. The first need that people have is a need for love. People need to know they're loved. No matter who you meet, where you go, people need to know that they are loved. Secondly, the need for security. For security. People need to have a sense of security in their lives. The third need of people is the need for creative expression. People need a sense of achievement, that they've accomplished something with their lives, that they can express the gifts and the abilities that God has given them, that they are somebody. Number four, the need for recognition. People want to know. People don't really want plaques and awards. People just want to know they can make a difference with their life. That when life is over and all is said and done, that life was a little better for the people that they touched. Number five, people have a need for new experiences. Things that they can look forward to. Things that can keep them motivated and burdened and and pushing on in their lives. Number six, the need for self-esteem. People need to feel like they are where God wants them to be. They need to feel like God has done something in their life. They need their self-esteem built up. And we, we live in a world that does nothing but beat down people's self-esteem. People are constantly being kicked and abused and beaten up on and talked down to and talked about, and their self-esteem at some point just gets washed out. And they begin to believe, I'm nobody and I can't do anything. That's the kind of people that Nehemiah walked into. He walked into people for 70 years that have been told by their enemies, you're a nobody and you can't do anything. You're unequipped, you're unable, you're incompetent, you're unskilled, you don't have the leadership, you don't have the ability, you don't have the tools, you don't have the gifts, you're a bunch of nobodies and you can't do anything. And Nehemiah walked in and said, wait a minute, I've got a word from God. You're somebody. You can do anything God calls you to do. You see, a leader cannot take people where he hasn't been. And Nehemiah was a man who maybe viewed himself as just a cupbearer, but with a call of God on his life, he began to view himself differently. And as we look at these principles of motivation, you'll find that these will help you if you're promoted to a new position or if you're trying to sell an idea uh, to your boss or when you need other people to rally to a cause or when you're trying to introduce change to somebody, these are things that you have to have going. How does a leader build a team? 
Well, notice in verse 11, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. It's amazing to me that God's word is so clear and we try to complicate it so much. It does not say that Nehemiah went out and hired a contractor. It does not say that Nehemiah rushed to get the job done. He did not hit the ground running. He didn't come in and say, I would like to announce 37 things I'm going to change beginning today. He just came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Now there were some things that had to fall in place and some things that needed to be done for Nehemiah to be successful. And the first was this, he expected opposition. Nehemiah didn't expect everybody to just applaud everything he had up his sleeve. He didn't expect everybody to agree with him. He expected opposition. Sanballat and Tobiah had disagreed with him and had, had been worried and concerned because someone had come to seek the welfare of Israel. Listen, if you're doing what God wants you to do, you're going to face opposition. You're going to wrestle with principalities and powers and rulers in heavenly places. You're going to wrestle with carnal opposition. You're going to have to deal with the fact that if you're moving forward, somebody is always going to try to hold you back. And so he expected opposition. Why? Because people are resistant to change. People are resistant to change. And people plead for the status quo. Now, the Latin word for status quo is the mess we're in. But people would rather stay in the mess we're in than change. Uh, we, we just don't like to change. You know, I, I always say, Dad, get a new car. Uh, mine's fine. No, it's not. It's got a leak. Your trunk is full of water. Get a new car. No, it's fine. I can vacuum it out. Do something different. No, I don't want to do that. People are resistant to change. And you know what? The older we get, the more we resist change. One of the things that ought to be in your prayer life every day of your life, Lord, make me fresh and new, not dependent on what I used to do, but fresh in what I'm doing for you now. People are resistant. He expected opposition. Now, there's a law of leadership here. There is no opportunity without opposition. There is no such thing as an opportunity without opposition. Somebody's going to say, you can't do that. Somebody's going to say, you can't start that business. Somebody's going to say, your family can't accomplish that. Somebody's going to say, this won't work. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 9, For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Number two, he waited for God's timing. Not only did he expect opposition, but he waited for God's timing. Look at verse 11. I was there three days. Ecclesiastes 3.7 says, There is a time to be silent and a time to speak. Ecclesiastes 8.6 says, There is a right time and a right way to do everything. He waited for God's timing. He took mental notes. He had a discerning eye and a perceptive ear. He, he listened, he watched, he observed for three days. He didn't rush out and make an announcement. He did not call a press conference immediately. He said, I need to size this thing up. I need to see for myself what's going on. I need to wait until God says it's time for me to make an announcement. You see, leaders know how to use delays to their advantage. Nehemiah knew, hey, you know, it's been 70 years since they've had the wall. Another three days is not going to hurt them. We can wait until it's God's time. You can go out and do God's will, but if you don't do it in God's time, you're going to make a mistake. 
And you have to wait for God's timing. Here was a man who understood that a good idea can be killed by bad timing. Now, the third thing he did was he got the facts first. Look at verse 12. And I arose in the night and a few men with me, and I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. Now, I want to talk about that little phrase in just a minute. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were consumed by fire. See what he's doing? You remember in chapter 1, that was the report he had gotten. Now he's finding out that it's actually true. Verse 14. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Why did Nehemiah go at night? Big point. Because leaders protect their plans from premature death. Leaders protect their plans from premature death. In other words, you don't want to share what God's been working in you until it's the right time. You don't want to share until you've got all your facts straight because all it takes is for one person to say to you, you can't do that. You don't want to do that. You don't really think God's in that, do you? And all of a sudden, it's like a bucket of water on your fire. You see... People are lined up to discourage you. I don't know if you know this. You say, yeah, you know, my family's lined up to discourage me. I mean, you've got people that are lined up to rain on your parade. It may be your employer. It may be your employees. It may be somebody in your family. It may be somebody in your neighborhood. But there are always some people who just want to tell you, you can't do that. I'm glad that God gave me enough tenacity not to listen to the people who told me what I could not do. Because you see, I really do believe with God everything is possible. And I do believe that just like Jeremiah, before I was ever formed in my mother's womb, God set his heart on me. And I believe that for you. And I believe that for every person that's ever been born. And I believe nothing can stop you except you if you just understand God's call on your life. Don't prematurely let your plans be killed by those who are never going to catch your vision and to catch your dream. You see, Nehemiah gathered his facts. He got all his facts together. Proverbs 14, 15 says, The prudent man considers his steps. Nehemiah did not want his plan stalled before it ever got started. I, I was channel surfing the other night, and I was watching a movie. I, I don't remember which one it was, but I was watching a movie, and, and it was the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and, and this, uh, this boat that looked like a destroyer was leaving, trying to get out of the harbor as the Japanese were bombing it, and there came up a, a, just a little PT kind of boat behind it, and there were junior officers on the boat waving and waving and waving, trying to get on the boat, and the guy who was in charge, who was not the captain of the ship, Looked at the guy next to him and said, do you see anybody behind us? He said, no, sir, I don't. He said, how long will it take us to get started if we stop to pick them up? He said, it'll take us 20 minutes to get started. He said, we'll be blown out of the water. I don't see anything, and nobody on this deck sees anything. And he kept moving. 
and the boat survived for one reason. A guy made a decision, I'm not going to stop to pick up people that weren't here on time. You see, you and I have to make a decision to get our facts together and then to not let anything or anybody stall what God is doing in our lives. Now let me ask you something. Which is easier, to promote a new idea or to kill it? Kill it. You know why? Because negative people are louder than positive people. Positive people just walk up and say, hey man, you know, good job praying for you. You know, appreciate it. Negative people say, do you know what they're doing? That's just the way negative people are. They want everybody to hear them. Positive people just write prayer cards and they just pat you on the back. You know, negative people just shout to the world because they want to draw attention to themselves. It's a whole lot easier to kill an idea than it is to promote an idea. Now, notice what the problem was. The task was overwhelming. They had a history of defeat, and the people were discouraged. The task was overwhelming. They had a history of defeat, and those people were absolutely discouraged, and Nehemiah had to get all his facts together before he started beating the drum and making the announcement, saying, here's what we're going to do for God. He had to get all the facts together. Number four, he rallied the people and expected a commitment. Verse 17, then I said to them, and I want you to notice the plurals here, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Now's the time to act. This is our problem. He didn't say, now folks, I've come here to tell you, you've got problems. No. He said, we've got problems. These are our problems. And we've got to do something about it. He explained the problem, then he exhorted them to act on it. Why? Because change never occurs in comfortable people. If you want people to change, you've got to get them from being comfortable. And so Nehemiah didn't pull any punches. He said, you see the bad situation we're in. But he didn't stop there. He said, let's rebuild the wall. I know, you know, everybody knows what the problem is, but let's do something about the problem. Now, here's what happens to us. The longer we live in a situation, the less we are inclined to do something about it and the more we are inclined to just stay the same. And we just begin to settle for things. All of a sudden, we don't see things anymore. You know, you, you just don't notice stuff. All of a sudden, you know, that the first day that stain was on the carpet, you went, ooh. But now it's about three years later, and you just kind of walk over it. You don't see it, and that's why you need somebody with a fresh eye and, not, and a critical eye and a good sense who comes in and says, you know what, you need to paint this. You need to fix this up. You need to do something about this. This is not adequate. You need to knock a wall out. You need to put a wall in. You, you, you need to do some things. Why? Because we'll just get comfortable with where we are. Hey, I've got my parking space. I've got my chair in the Sunday school class. I don't have a problem. Yes, you do, because somebody doesn't have a parking space. And somebody doesn't have a chair. And there's not a place. And so we can sit around and be content that, hey, you know, everything's okay. We're all right. And I'm going to tell you, we're, we're at a level that it's hard for us to bump out of because we're just comfortable enough that it's dangerous. We can say, well, as long as there's a little bit of room, but what about the day when there's not? 
What about the needs that are going unmet? What about the ministries that need to be started? What about the lives that we need to touch? You see, we have a problem and we need to do something about it. Notice what Nehemiah does. He appeals to their self-esteem. We can do better than this. I mean, we can be better than this. We don't have to be downtrodden and distraught. We've got a great God. We can do better than this. Notice that he talks to them about the fact that God's reputation is at stake. He says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. The enemies were mocking them. They were saying, you know, you folks say you worship the one true God and you can't even build a fence. You can't get anything done. Your city's in disarray. Our cities look a whole lot better than your cities. Uh, we do a whole lot more than you do. How can you say you worship the one true God? Here are people that have gotten lazy and comfortable and apathetic and discouraged. And Nehemiah walks in and he sizes up the situation and he tells them we can do better. Now I want you to notice something about godly motivation. Godly motivation is not external not about buildings and budgets godly motivation is not internal it's not about us feeling better about who we are godly motivation is external it's about the glory of God the only question we need to ask ourselves is are we doing what we're supposed to be doing for the glory of God are we doing everything we're supposed to be doing for the glory of God are we putting ourselves in a position for God's power and God's glory and God's presence to rest on this place in such a way that it's bigger than us? Number five, he called on them to step out in faith. And I told them, verse 18, how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. There's a great quote by T.S. Rendell there. We won't take time to read it. But I want you to notice what Nehemiah has done. Nehemiah has basically said, look, I didn't ask for this job. I, I didn't apply for this job. I was a cupbearer to the king. I was minding my own business. A man came in. I asked him how things were going in Jerusalem. He told me it broke my heart. I began to be burdened. God began to give me a vision. I shared it with the king. The king said, you can go. And here I am because this is what God wants me to do. I've got to tell you, the easiest thing to do is to pastor a church where everything's already been built and everything's already been done. The hardest thing to do is to take a church through the process. You know, the last thing I personally want to do is to go in and kind of major project. But it's not about Michael Catt and what he wants to do. You see, God called me to the ministry, and one day God called me to this church, and in his call to this church, he said, there are going to be some things you're going to have to do, and it's not about you, it's about me. So I have to accept that. And I have to believe that God has us here to do something significant, not just to sit and do the same things that we've done, but to stretch our borders and to step out in faith and to do those things that have never been done before. Nehemiah said, here I am, let's arise and build. And they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Motivated men remove obstacles. They remove obstacles that people stumble over. And here's what you need to ask about any leader. 
You don't need to ask them what their title is. That doesn't make any difference. You don't need to ask them what their position is. You don't need to ask them what their job description is. You just need to ask one question. Is God's hand on them? Is God's anointing and God's hand on that person? If it is, then I need to join up with God in what he's trying to do. If it's not, I need to go somewhere where God's hand is on somebody. Because I tell you folks, I wouldn't want to be a part of a church where God's hand wasn't on that church. And you don't either. Where God's power and God's presence is not felt. But I tell you, when God's power and God's presence is felt, I can step out on faith. You see, stepping out on faith means we have to do something that we can't figure out. And there are going to be some things, and you're going to say, you know, the X's and O's aren't there. Two and two is not making four. How can we do this? This is impossible. That's right, it is. Isn't that what God's in the business of doing? Impossible things? I mean, isn't God in the miracle-working business? Isn't God in the business of doing things that we don't take credit for? Isn't God in the business of doing things that says, when I do it, I'll get the glory and the credit for it? That's what I want God to do. That's all I want God to do. And we have to step out on faith and believe that God wants to do that with us and in us and through us. And that if God leads us to do something, he provides all the resources for us to do what we need to do. We just have to be obedient and step out in faith. Number six. He answered the opposition quickly and confidently. Verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore we, are his, serv we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion right or memorial in Jerusalem. Now did anybody notice anything in verse 19? Two became three. Two became three. Why? Because critics can never keep their opinions to themselves. They've got to tell somebody else. And they've got to convince somebody else. And, and they'll drain the life out of that person. Two became three. You see, here's what happened. Nehemiah has gotten along with God. He's sought God's timing. He's stepped out in faith. He's called the people. The people are saying, let us arise and build. And there are three people who show up just for business meetings. And they say, objection! Can I tell you something? Critics are always the people who don't pay the bills. They just want to know how much they are. Critics are people who want a free seat and a free ride and a free ticket but don't want to pay the price to be a part of something great. And I love what Nehemiah said. Hey, you can stand on the side and criticize all you want, but you have no right, no portion, no memorial in Jerusalem. When God hands out his well-dones, you won't get one. When God says, you're blessed because of what you've done for me, you won't hear it. 
When God says, that church made a difference, He won't be talking to you. When God says, that Sunday school class touched people's lives, He's not talking about you. Now, there are three things that you have to do here. And, and by the way, the longer you're in something, the more opposition you get. The only day I could ever get a big vote was the day that I was voted on to come as pastor. After that, it's been going downhill ever since. <laughs> and by the way, every decision I make makes that a little bit more of a reality. But you know what? That's not my problem. That's the Lord's problem. You see, folks, if you run your life by the voice of those who say you can't, you will never do anything for God because the devil will always have somebody out there telling you what you can't do and why you can't do it and asking you what it's going to cost and why do we need to do that. And, you know, I've had people say to me, well, why do you want to do all these ministries? Because God's Word says we're supposed to be about that business. That's why. Now, why do we have to? Because. The glory of God and the witness of Christ is at stake in this community and God will not let us get by with just getting by. Sherwood loves to brag on being a lighthouse church in this community. We love to talk about how this community looks to us to make a difference. I'm going to tell you, you can't have status quo thinking and expect this community to respect what this church stands for. You can't do it. If you want to be a lighthouse, you've got to hit your britches and go to work. Because lighthouses don't operate on their own. They have to have people who build it. They have to have people who keep the lenses clean and make the light shine forth so that when the storms of life come, people can say, there's a place of refuge that I can go. There's a place that will accept me as I am, like I am, with all my faults and all my problems. Somebody will love me unconditionally. They won't look at me when I walk in the door and say, what are you doing here? There are enough places like that in this world. The church needs to be a place that says whosoever will may come. Now, there's always going to be people on the cold water committee. You know, they're always going to be saying, whoa, 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 wait, 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 we can't do that. So let me give you three things you need to do. Number one, stand in faith. I found a quote this week. It says, negative people are like buzzards. They look for anything to pounce on and wait for things to die because they live off others' death. I have actually met people who call themselves Christians who enjoy watching a church die because they just won't change. They would rather the church die and close its doors than to get on their knees before God and repent for what they've done. They'd rather do it. I was there until we killed it. <laughs> Boy, I just couldn't wait to stand before Jesus and tell him that. You died for the church and I killed it. You have to step out in faith and stand in faith. Notice what he says. The God of heaven will give us success. Who's going to give us success? Well, we're going to go to the bank and we're going to get some people and we're going to get some major players and we're going to get some movers and shakers. No, the God of heaven gives us success. I'm going to tell you, you look at that group of disciples and you tell me Jesus had a chance of success. Got a loudmouth fisherman that doesn't know when to shut up. Got a guy named Thomas that can't believe anything. Got a bunch of guys we don't even know anything about. They just seem to be walking in a crowd, you know, kind of like a little peewee soccer team just going with the dirt, you know, and just, just moving along as a group together. 
You got a guy that all he wants to do is overthrow the government, and you're telling me that Jesus Christ started a worldwide organization to touch the world with a bunch of losers like that? Yes, he did. Not a leader among them until the Spirit of God fell on them. And then every one of them were leaders. And Peter quit trying to worry about himself, and then he started trying to preach Jesus. And all of a sudden, things began to change, and lives began to change, and power came on the church. Why? Because they stood up in faith. Secondly, don't argue with the opposition. Vance Hebner says a bulldog can whip a skunk, but it's not worth it. Twenty-five years of ministry, I have never argued anybody into seeing my point. I never have. Have you? Now, you may be in a position where you can make somebody see your point because it's either that or you'll fire them. You may be in a position where they have to see your point because you're the breadwinner. You may be in a position where, where you're, you're saying, you've got to do this or else, but you'll never argue anybody into changing. That's why I don't want to argue anybody into changing. I just want to let God change people. Because, you see, if I argue into, you into changing, somebody will argue you into going back the way you used to be. Guess who's going to change you for good? The Holy Spirit. Notice, we're going to build this wall. He was moving forward. Number three, serve notice that their time is over. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. These three guys were, were squatters. Uh, they didn't want to be a part of God's project. They didn't want to be a part of God's idea. They didn't want to be a good part of God's plan. They just wanted to make sure that their old way of life was not going to be disturbed. You know what? If they built the wall, these guys were going to be affected by it. So they were not Jews. They were people who were on the outskirts, and they were critical, and they were cynical, and they were... Uh, they were down on everything that was happening, and they were concerned and worried that someone had come to seek the welfare of Israel. That somebody cared about what happened to God's people. That somebody had a passion and a burden, and they said, we've got to stop that. Let's kill the dreamer and see what becomes of his dream. Let's stop this. Let's make sure this doesn't happen. And Nehemiah says, Sorry. But when God hands out the rewards, you won't get any. You can be a member of this church for a month or a year or 40 years. But when God hands out the rewards, if you haven't said, let us arise and build, if you haven't had the mentality of the people in the book of Nehemiah, the people had a mind to work. And when God's dishing out the rewards... You won't get any. You say, well, I, I want some rewards. Well, the only reason you should want them is so you can give them back. You say, Lord, it was only because you were in me that I was even motivated to do this. It was only because of your power and your grace and your goodness and your love and your forgiveness that I even wanted to be a part of anything like this. You motivated me. And so whatever good I did, I take the works of my hands and I 
laid them at your feet and give you glory because Jerusalem is not about me and Sherwood is not about me and ministry is not about me. It's about the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. We're going to be required in these next few months to step out in faith. I believe with all my heart that God's timing is coming to a point of commitment. We're going to be required to make some decisions and do some things that are going to stretch us beyond anything we can possibly imagine. But you know what? God will make a way. And God's resources are greater than any resources we can possibly imagine. And God's power and God's goodness and God's gift and God's blessings are there waiting for us to receive them. You see, we've got everything we need to do God's will. All we need is to say, Lord, yes. Now what do you want me to do? Don't even know the question yet. But Lord, whatever you want me to do, the answer is yes. Don't need to think about it. Don't need to pray about it. You see, God never reveals his will for you to consider it. God reveals his will for you and I to obey it. God said, put your hand to the plow and don't look back. God said to those disciples, let's go. And many did not follow him, but he kept going. He set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem, and he walked all the way to the cross. Why? Because he came to do his Father's will. Folks, there's no reason to live today unless you come to do your Father's will because that is the only way you're going to find meaning and purpose in your life. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Kent. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.